Amen. Well, it's good to be back. Good to see all of you. Missed you all. Thank you for uh, uh, Kip and Jory for preaching while I was away. I hear they did a great job. And uh, Jory for filling in on all the uh, Bible studies. I really appreciate that. Um, today, if you're a guest with us, we just go through scripture. And you happen to have joined us when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 from verses 13 to 22. So it's been a, a few weeks since we were in the previous passage, so I'll give a little background to that. But first, let's read that scripture. And in order of, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, from verse 13 to 22. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participates in the altar? What do I mean then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So our previous passage three weeks ago, um, we need to kind of review since it's been some time so that we can uh, continue with the flow of the thought. And that first part of the chapter was a warning to us not to fall for those same temptations for which Israel succumbed in the wilderness. You know, they saw the miraculous plagues. They experienced the parting of the sea. I mean, imagine how amazing that would have been to see all those plagues hit Egypt, and yet here in Goshen, nothing happened to you. And then to see the pillar of cloud lead you out of the, out through the wilderness and then to see the sea part and you walk through it. And yet they murmured and grumbled and complained and even said, we want to go back to Egypt. But we're supposed to learn from their bad examples. Experiencing those miracles was not enough to have them trust God instead of complaining. And God's judgments fell on them. The more we know and witness, the more we are accountable for. And this was all summed up in the verse preceding our passage for today. Verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to always be looking to God with trust and faith. No matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, no matter what we've seen or experienced, Every day needs to be a day where we look to God and trust him in faith. Verse 13 is one of my favorite verses. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when those tests of faith come, and, and they will come, somebody said you're either in a trial, going into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial, right? We know that in those situations, verse 13 is true. It's a promise of God to us that every test we face is one that all human beings face. This word for man here is anthropos, meaning mankind. All mankind are familiar with the tests. You, none of us get a special test that's only for us. That's too tough for anybody. God knows our limits, and he's not going to allow us to be tempted above the level to which he's brought us to at this point. We, now, he stretches us. The, the temptation always is, is meant to increase our faith and help us grow, but it's never beyond our ability. We can never say a failure on our part was due to what God has allowed. Because that's the temptation of the old man. This is to say, God, God put me in this situation and it, no one can do this. No, everyone faces the same temptations. And we know some people, especially one person, has endured those temptations and made it through. And we can look to him to get us through. Look for that door that God has provided we will all be discouraged and be taken to the end of ourselves at different times in life, but God is there and his hand is always held out to save us, to bring us through, to help us endure. Now, I admit that sometimes I've thought this is too tough. Who can do this? I can't, I, I'm not gonna make it through this one. But in the end, I can look back and say, he brought me through. He brought me to the other side. So I memorized this verse to remind myself of this promise that every time I'm in those situations and I think it's too much, no, God's word declares it is not too much. And he's going to see me through. He's going to provide a way of escape. So I encourage you to memorize it as well because you can fall back on those promises of God in those hard times and your faith will be encouraged. I've seen others who were going through things that I thought, how in the world can anybody endure that? Why would God let someone go through something that hard? But I don't know the grace that's been given to them to get through it. And God has his own reasons. We stand on the word of God, not our own reasoning. Paul thought that his affliction, which I believe was his eye disease, was unbearable, but God and his grace was sufficient for him. God's strength was perfected in Paul's weakness. It humbled Paul and it kept him from becoming proud of all that God was doing through him and all that God had revealed to him. So looking back at the theme that runs through this passage, we can see this flow of Paul's thoughts. Jesus was right there with the Israelites in the wilderness. He was their source of water. He was the source of their daily manna. He was dealing with their sin, providing a way out of every difficulty and trial, and even drawing them out of their own stubborn hearts. Yet they refused to enter the promised land. Twice, Paul tells us in verses, verses 6 and 11 in this chapter, 
to learn from their bad examples. Their lives were a warning to us not to think that we have arrived before we cross over the Jordan, which is a picture of us passing on into glory. In every situation, God provides a way to bear with and through the trial, but we must endure and walk in the Spirit. We must resist our old nature and the enemy of our souls. And when we submit ourselves to God and draw near to him, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. It seems the Israelite older generation just would not learn from the many lessons that God put before them. So let us, Paul's saying, don't be like them. Let us not be like them, but instead learn from all that God takes us through and from his provision and from his discipline in our lives. He is faithful to his word. He will provide a way to escape so that we can endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Remember Israel's sin and the consequences and learn the lessons. Idolatry destroys us. It keeps us from reaching the promised land. It causes us to doubt God's word. It will have us die in the desert. So Paul says, run from it. When it presents itself to you, run the other way. Whether it's a thing you want to own or an experience you want to have or something you want to become, if it, if it comes before God, you should see it as poison. Poison custom made for you by the enemy of your soul designed specifically for the weaknesses in your old nature. If you love something other than, if your love for something other than Jesus defines who you are, that probably means you have not yet been converted. I know that's a harsh statement. It's a pretty defining statement, but I believe it's true because Christians are defined by their love for God and others, which is obedience to the great command. The primary love or source of satisfaction for the unbelievers changes over time and it often becomes this mixture of a number of different things that they believe is gonna meet their deepest needs and satisfy them. In that sense, atheists are pantheists because they have all these little different gods that they think are gonna satisfy their soul. Believers, however, can enjoy the good things of God without being enslaved by them. While we enjoy God's good gifts in moderation, we don't give ourselves over to those things. We don't live for them. We live for God and have given ourselves to him and him alone. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? I really thank you, Jill, for that choice of those songs. You know, I always send Jill the songs a week ahead, the sermon a week ahead so she can pick the, the songs and they went so perfectly with the sermon today. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I was on vacation. <laughs> so, well, the Holy Spirit's faithful. Amen.
which is even more exciting to know that God orchestrated it. Communion is participation in the new covenant sealed in Christ's blood. And that does not mean that the elements are transformed into his blood and body, but that in this symbolic act, we declare that he shed his blood and allowed his body to be broken for our salvation. We take him as our life. Now, Paul's not changing topics here. He's declaring that if we are participating in communion, we're declaring that our primary love, our highest priority in life is Christ. Our allegiance is to Jesus above all else, and that will exclude any competition for our hearts. If by taking communion, I declare Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for me, and that I am a recipient of the forgiveness that's mine through his atoning death, how can I then give my allegiance to something else? This passage is showing us the seriousness of communion and why participation in it should keep us from idolatry. Paul explained the weightiness of this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, this is telling us someone might choose to die for uh, to save the life of someone else they, they thought was worth dying for. They wanted to save their life because they thought they're a good person. And that's admirable. In fact, it's the greatest possible display of love. If it was for you, if somebody saw that you're about to be hit by a bus and they pushed you out of the way and they were killed, you would, you would feel such indebtedness to, to live, to honor that life who gave themselves for you so that you could live. You'd want to live the best life you could live, making that sacrifice worth it. But Jesus did much more than that. You see, another person would die for your temporary physical life. They would do it because they thought maybe you were worth dying for or a good person, but Jesus is our maker. He took on human life to reconcile us to himself while we were living in rebellion toward him, while we were shaking our fist at him. He was saying, saving not just our physical life in this world, but our eternal souls. And to do that, he had to suffer the consequences for the rebellion that we deserve. You may have heard it being like a judge volunteering. Have you ever heard that illustration? The, the man comes before the judge and, and he's drunk driving. He killed somebody and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. And then the judge takes off his robe and steps down and offers to serve his sentence for him. That's a good illustration, but like all il illustrations, it falls way short the human judge did not create you. Our rebellion was against our creator and his generous goodness. 
The redemption by our creator was much greater than a human judge's willingness to serve our, our temporary sentence. When we take communion, we're declaring that our merciful creator loved us so much that he took the judgment that we deserved. We eat the striped and pierced bread to remind us of the, the torn and pierced body of Jesus. And we drink the juice to remember his blood that was shed for our rebellion against him. We, wretched, hopeless sinners, place all our, our, our filthiness on the spotless Lamb of God who out of love came into this world to redeem our sin-sick souls. How then can we love something he created more than him? How selfish would we be to ignore that greater love and give our hearts to created things, turning them into idols? Verse 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In the symbolism of the bread and wine, we're declaring participation in the price Jesus paid to set us free from the enslaving power of sin. And that is our uniting factor. That's the most basic Christian belief. And all of us who hold that truth are no longer of this world. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the family of God. We may understand some scriptures in a different way or disagree about certain doctrines, but our faith in the atonement of Jesus makes us one family. Look around the room for just a second. Go ahead, turn your head and look around. These are your brothers and your sisters. They just don't happen to be here. You're going to be with them forever. You know, sometimes our families are not nearly as close to us as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, there are blood, but all of us are under a different blood. When people move away from Sedona, they ask me, what should I look for in a new church? And I always tell them, look for biblical teaching and love. Because love defines the Christian life. I, in my youth, I was in a cult, and there was a lot of brotherly love, but the teaching was off. And sometimes you can find churches with great biblical teaching but there's no love in the church. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit. And if the Spirit isn't there, you need to find somewhere else. Amen? It can all just be mental. I remember um, maybe at the end of the first or second year when I was here emphasizing the familial love and oneness in a series of sermons. And... and hoping to bring the body more together to care for one another, to see what God means us to be as a family. And uh, so someone accused me of trying to start a cult. We Americans are so independent that we, try, we downplay this basic biblical teaching that we are one in Christ. We are a family, the family of God. The Jews were the children of Israel. 
Paul teaches that we are the children of Abraham by faith. That implies that we should be involved in one another's lives and help when help is needed. Forgive one another of offenses. And as Paul said in Philippians 2.3, we should count others more significant than ourselves. And if we live this way, we experience a foretaste of heaven. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? This unity was foreshadowed by the children of Israel. They were a family. They, they were literally blood. And they were united by their sacrifices at the altar. They all brought that food to the altar and they all ate of those sacrifices. They shared that same faith with the same hope and the same promises, just as they all ate the sacrifices from that one altar. So we also partake of Jesus from the altar of the cross. We share the same faith in his atoning blood. We have the same hope of heaven and his work in us being completed. And we cling to the promises of God throughout scripture. Verse 19, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be a participant with demons. So here's what Paul is getting at. Christians sometimes ob obtain the meat right from the temple itself, the pagan altar. And they're free to do so. The food's not going to defile them. And the image there is just stone. But the picture presented is that those who do so are partaking along with those who worship the demons those idols represent. And in doing so, it appears to others that they are one with the demon worship. And whether the idol was a fertility goddess or the healing god of Asclepius, they're demons who try to take credit for the gifts of God. This is why the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 29 gave believers four requirements, each of which have to do with idolatry and what went on in the pagan temples. Do you remember Paul, Paul went to the Jerusalem Council to ask about his mission to the Gentiles and how the Gentiles, did Gentiles have to be circumcised? Did they have to obey the law? And if so, what? And the, the elders and apostles came together. They prayed. They sought the Holy Spirit. And they came up with just four requirements that seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit. Now, when I first read these requirements, I thought, oh, that's kind of strange because they're kind of asking them to do some Jewish laws when Paul's telling them it's all by grace, but then it clicked. These are all things that take place in a pagan temple. And they're real, what they're really saying to them is stay out of the pagan temples. Don't participate in the worship of demons. Um, so the, the, uh, the commands were um, not eat food offered to idols, or with the blood of the animal, because pagans uh, didn't drain the blood as Jews did, or what has been, uh, uh, or from sexual immorality, which often followed the sacrificial feast in the pagan temples. So when I looked at this, I noticed that uh, that's how the pagans sacrificed their animals. They didn't cut the throat like the Jews did, 
They strangled the animal, so the blood was in the animal. And Paul's kind of adding to what the Jerusalem council said or clarifying it, and that if the purchase the meat in the marketplace and you don't know that it came from a pagan temple, don't ask. But don't go into the pagan temple and participate in their rituals or be there with them as they sacrifice those animals to their demons. I see it as Paul clarifying what the Jerusalem council meant not to obtain meat at a pagan temple. We don't have many pagan temples. Well, yes, we have some in Sedona. Um, but I, I, as far as I know, they don't sacrifice animals presently. Um, but we do have a lot of butchers and meat markets. But the concept is just as true, and the temptation is just as seductive today. We have invitations to worship at other altars, and all promise satisfaction. But none tell us the inevitable price that we'll end up paying. There's altars of money, altars of lust, altars of sports, of fame, of entertainment, and a million more. And when unbelievers see us worshiping with them at those things, we've misrepresented Christ. Verse 21 and 22, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Communion or idol worship. You can't do both. This is probably one of the New Testament's clearest prohibitions against syncretism, that is, mixing another faith with Jesus. Let your testimony be without question. Don't give the wrong impression to others, especially in something involved in a worship ritual, which is so symbolic. You know, I was challenged by this very thing uh, when I went to my father-in-law's Shinto funeral. The family all takes the, you know, the Shinto priest is there chanting his thing that he doesn't even understand. He just memorizes the chant. And we're all supposed to light a little incense and put it in the altar in front of the picture of the father. I couldn't do it. And I knew it was offensive to the family. And I wrestled with, I don't want to offend them. But at the same time, I don't want to misrepresent my Lord and say there's something more, there's something else besides Jesus. You don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy. You won't win that confrontation. Look to Jesus and live. We see him giving himself to us in communion. He is our escape from the constant temptations of idolatry. Keep your eyes on him. You know, in the Hindu and Buddhist cultures, it's a temptation to avoid persecution by just adding Jesus to your other gods. They have lots of gods. Sometimes you go into a room and the whole room is lined with pictures of gods and they'll put Jesus up there too. But Jesus won't share his glory with another. We have that same temptation. If he's just one of many ascended masters, not the way, the truth, and the life, then people won't be offended, right? If we don't say it's exclusively Jesus, 
he's our only way to God, then we're, people will be all right with us talking about Jesus. But Jesus will not accept our denial of his supreme authority. God's jealousy for our worship is not like man's jealousy. Man's jealous because he wants something all for himself and doesn't want to share it. God's jealousy is because he has so graciously given himself for our good and yet sees us seeking to give ourselves to something that's destructive to our souls. God is jealous for his glory, which is for our good. Man is jealous for his own good his own personal good. Paul's exhortation in this passage is reminding us that we can be just like the Israelites in the wilderness, never satisfied with all the goodness and grace that God is showering upon us. We, of all people, with such abundance, need to take the lesson to heart. God hasn't given just manna or quail. We have 50 varieties of bread in the supermarket. I mean, really, there's so many different kinds of bread. It's crazy. You don't know what to pick. We have all kinds of meat, fresh fish. It's amazing what we have constantly before us, the choices that we have, running water in our homes, things the children of Israel never even dreamed of, even in the best of Egypt. But our old nature is no different from theirs. And that's why we can so easily get caught up in complaining or seeking satisfaction in some idolatrous thing. Most advertisements that we see, and we see a lot of advertising, is telling us to worship something and that thing will make us happy. If we just buy that thing, if we just take that pill, if we just experience this or that, we face it continually. The Bible calls idolatry adultery, and that's because in Christ we become the bride of Christ. And idolatry says we have another lover. It's unfaithfulness to the one who is always faithful to us. We can either thank God for all the goodness and abundance he gives us and worship him for his grace and mercy on our souls, or we can let those good things that he created become our idols. Our test to determine if we are slipping into idolatry is to ask ourselves what we think about most of the day. What do we set our mind on? What do we set our hearts on? You know, Colossians chapter 3 begins with that, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You know, when we're working, it's necessary to have our minds on our occupation, but when we're not working, where does our mind wander? Is it to his word? Is it singing a song of praise? Is it to fellowship or communing with God? Or something is something else dominating our thoughts, something that promises satisfaction outside of God. If we say, oh, I'm okay, it's the, I'm in the former category, then we need to remember the warning at the end of the last passage, take heed lest we fall. And thank God for his grace and persevere. But if it's the latter, 
If you're here this morning and saying, you know, the latter sounds more like me, there's something else on my mind all the time. My heart's going after something else. Talk to God about it. He already knows. I, I, I sat next to a man on the plane, and this man grew up in church, and his wife is a wonderful Christian, according to him. And he said, you know, I have to say, I love money more than I love God. And it just, my heart was so heavy for him. He said, I, I want to be different, but it's so hard. You know, the funny thing was, he says, God always puts pastors next to me on planes. <laughs> and I said, you know why? Because the hound of heaven is after you. He's trying to draw your heart away from the money, the mammon, and fix it on him and him alone. And if that's you, repent, which means to make a commitment to go the other way by the grace of God. Paul told us this passage, in this passage, run from it, run from idolatry. Share with someone you can confide in and make a plan to change that by scheduling your time with things that will help you draw closer. Bible study, devotions in the morning, listening to, to Christian radio, singing songs of praise, uh, reading the word, just being around believers. The only way to flee from idolatry is to draw near to God in worship. And I want to end it by making one other kind of an unusual, uncommon suggestion. And it can be for anybody, even, even if you say, yeah, I'm in the former category, but I want to go deeper. Let me suggest that you start experiencing communion yourself. You don't have to have a pastor to bless the bread and the juice. Just sit down with the wafer and a, and a little cup of juice and thank Jesus for what he did for you. Envision it. Think about it. Let your heart dwell on it. And just take communion with you and Jesus. And I guarantee you, it'll draw you closer. And it'll help turn you from idolatry to loving him and him first and foremost. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?